In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Welcome to The Spectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have some very pleasant topics to talk about. It's not like I'm so anxious that I can barely breathe right now. Yeah, pleasant? Ah, I am depressed. Let's start off. Let's just do a mental check-in to start off this episode. Nathan, how are you feeling? I'm not doing too great, man. Just the other day I was watching the TV and I was seeing images from what's going on in Italy. And suddenly I felt myself not being able to breathe. And like, mm. uh, I couldn't sit down. And like, I've always had problems with anxiety, but it's never affected my breathing. Yeah. And now it is. And uh, I'm, I'm not okay with this. I, this, is, this is terrible. I'm, I'm really worried about everything. Um, but I do have my dog and I do have my wife. So that has been a nice little stable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I read my news. I do not watch my news. <laughs> I I, <laughs> I really should I really should just spend more time reading it. Um so Michael, what what about you? How are you doing? You know, I am intellectually depressed. I am like very overwhelmed by our current situation. I I'm usually pretty good at not tr- like you know, taking the world's problems on emotionally or mentally. I'm, yeah. but it has been a real struggle to not be, to not feel res- not, not responsible, not even like implicated, but both, you know, helpless and like, I like just wishing that I could have some influence on the world. Um, in a, in a really strong way, as opposed to just sitting at home to do my part. Yeah. Um, I feel like part of why we started the podcast in the first place was to feel like we could, uh, do something, you know, maybe actually, uh, touch some minds and, um, uh, discuss some issues and maybe change some people's perceptions. Um, and the pod definitely is a little bit therapeutic in that way, but, needing to stay up to date on everything that's been going on has definitely taken a little bit of a toll in the last few weeks. Yep. And now it's time for us to share that with you, our listeners. So Nathan, what are our topics today? Our topics today are going to be, uh, the proposals for dealing with the coronavirus, both those that have failed and those that have passed. Um, then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the flip-flopping that we've been seeing from many, uh, right-wing news sources, as well as, uh, right-wing actors and talk about how dangerous and intellectually dishonest that is and how, um, that is having negative effects on people's ability to prepare for this virus. Um, and then we're going to end by talking a little bit about why Bernie Sanders is still running and why in some ways we're okay with that. Yeah. And heads up, that might be also a little bit of a therapeutic session. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. don't judge us too harshly for this. We we said we were going to start being a little bit more positive about Joe Biden and he's not we'll really going to come up. So, yeah, exactly. That's you know, fair. We'll, and we'll definitely be more positive about him than we were in the last episode. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> but just a heads up if you don't want to listen to any more Bernie talk, We'll let you know when we're going to start on that segment and you can tune out. <laughs> yeah, that'll be our last segment. So yeah. just listen to our first two segments and then just, you know, peace out. Yeah. All right. So as as we start our, you know, coronavirus discussion, I do want to give just a little bit of a discussion of like where we are. I know we, we've done this a couple of times, but like things are changing so fast that I think it like is really important for us to just check in regularly. All right, so quickly an update on the numbers. So at this point, total confirmed cases in the world is 378,000 with 16,500 deaths. So let's, you know, be clear like we went from 100,000 to or 3 weeks ago to now 378,000. 
which is just insane. And in the United States, we've got 43,672 confirmed cases. Now, given our limited testing in the U.S., which we'll talk a little bit about, um, that's probably underreported. And we've seen 545 deaths so far with only 295 people recovered. So that means that like we have 40, almost 44,000 people with cases and only 300 have had time to recover. It's, it's like the pace of this thing is absolutely nuts. Um, and so our Surgeon General has warned that we're reacting way too slowly and we're almost definitely going to end up looking more like Italy than like China in our in our um, response or in our ultimate case count and our ability to care for people in, in hospitals. Um, we're looking at, as again, like shortages of hospital beds, staffs, ven- staff ventilators, like even masks and gloves. Healthcare workers are currently raising money privately for personal protective equipment because they're worried about shortages. Yeah, before I came up here, I was actually watching a program that my uh, grandmother was watching downstairs. And in the background, these nurses were talking about how they're using the same face mask all day. Which is like... That is messed up. That should not be happening. And it it, it partially defeats the purpose of the mask, right? Like yeah. if you are constantly breathing on the mask, getting moisture droplets on the inside and the outside, like the mask is becoming less and less effective as time goes on. Importantly as well, like we're no, we're learning more and more that this is not just a disease for the elderly. And I like I really want to call this out because, you know, I see, you know, young people, not any of my friends, but I've seen them on the news and all this stuff like people like not taking this seriously because it's a disease for old people. Um, oh, I've seen some of my friends do that. <laughs> We run in and different circles. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also I've seen this. Well, I went to well. a public school, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I say my friends, I just mean me and my twin brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we've also seen parents be a little cavalier about this. Because, like, yeah. you know, if, if, if it's not a huge risk for your kid, like, you may not be as worried. But let's be clear. Like, 38% of hospitalizations in the United States are for people under 55 years old. Now, that's compared to them making up 71% of the overall population. So it is a, a lower incidence of like the, the representation in the populace, population overall, but that's still a large portion. And in, in China, they, they did this study of two th- over 2,000 kids with confirmed or suspected cases, of which 6% became seriously ill with dire respiratory problems. So like kids are infected at a similar rate to adults. And while they do have less severe symptoms on average, the spectrum of, of cases that can exist can be really severe and even cause death. And the risk is really high or is, you know, higher than for other kids for babies because the hypothesis is that their, their respiratory system is not, as developed yet so like we're seeing this thing blow up so one thing that i've also been seeing from people from my friends like i said i went to a public school um who are not worried about this is the fact that most people don't know anybody who has the virus so michael you talked a little bit about this last week but could you just briefly explain again why is it that that is a very stupid way to be looking at it sure nathan and the reason that that is a, a terrible way to think about this is because of how viruses spread and grow over time. So mathematically, it's called exponential growth, which is what we discussed last week, which is where you have, if I give you a penny today and I double your money every day, um, it only takes you 28 days to get to a million dollars. So To put that in context of the virus, currently, latest statistics show that the virus is doubling every four days in the United States. So currently, you know, we're at, you know, 43,000 cases. For that to get, for that to spread to every single person in the United States would only take two and a half months at that rate. And that's assuming we do nothing. No, that's not even assuming we're doing nothing. That's assuming we're doing exactly what we're doing right now because right oh. now it's spreading at double every four days. That's 
So if we stop doing what we're doing, then that's that's gonna that number is just going to explode. Yeah, exactly. And 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 let's again put this in context. Like you may not know anybody with the virus until you know ten or fifteen days from now. But remember, it's doubling. By the time you know somebody, four days from then, you know two people. Four days from then, you know four people. And within, you know, if you've got a thousand Facebook friends, within, you know, 30 or 40 days, everybody you know has this. Yeah. It's like by the time you see it around you, it's way too late. We have to think about this at a grand scale. Like a group of university researchers in Britain just put out a study that if um, the United States did nothing, so unmitigated spread of the disease, they estimated that 2.2 million people would die in the United States. So let's let's anchor that in our annual deaths. So in 2019, the total number of deaths in the United States was 2.8 million people, which means that if 2.2 million people like died because of this disease, that's a 78% increase in total deaths. We're almost doubling the number of total deaths because that's what adding a new source of mortality is. It's cumulative. This is people that are people that have talked about this as like, oh well, it's it's like the flu. Even if it were like the flu, you're talking about adding tens of thousands of deaths. It's not saying that like, oh, it's just gonna be, you know, it's it's gonna take the place of the flu or something like that. No, you're increasing it. And this same study estimates that with some social distancing, uh, specifically limited to like the elderly. So say we were to go back to a pretty business as usual environment but where the elderly are like kept pretty much quarantined we would still have 1.1 million deaths which is a 39 percent increase over 2019 so doing nothing is absolutely not an option if we want to prevent millions of deaths yeah it is so we will talk a little bit more later about um what some people are thinking that uh, we should do. But for now, let's go ahead and talk about what we've done so far and what we've tried to do. So sure. let's talk about bills that have gone through Congress. So uh, Michael, yeah. you want to get us started on that? Yeah. So, so far, there have been two stimulus packages that have made it through Congress, signed by Donald Trump and made it into law uh, with a third potentially on the way. So the first one um, provided, uh, it was passed at the beginning of March and um, it provided for extra funds for the CDC, um, extra funds for the Food and Drug Administration, specifically for like nutritional programs, um, funds for the National Institute of Health, uh, Small Business Administration, um, which you know will help small businesses, um, and the United States Agency for International Development, so USAID. Um, which includes about, and it also includes about $4 billion to make more coronavirus tests available and about a billion dollars in loan subsidies for small businesses. So that was the first one. All well and good. Yeah, all, all good stuff. Um, then last week, uh, uh, Donald Trump signed uh, an additional package um, which provides for free coronavirus testing, which is great. Uh, it also provides for two weeks of paid family and sick leave, um, and it provides for more money for Medicaid and nutrition programs and increased unemployment insurance benefit. Um, so basically, the the bills have focused primarily on economic stimulus um, and funding for government programs that already exist and provide either social wellness or social goods, or they provide um, for you know addressing the healthcare crisis. And that brings us to the third bill, which uh, currently, uh, as of uh, today, which is Monday, uh, while we're recording this, has just failed in the Senate. This was a proposal by Senate Republicans uh, for this massive $2 trillion stimulus package. Um, So a lot of people are... Not sure exactly why Democrats voted against this. So Michael and I are going to just lay out some of the details of the bill, talk about some of the things about the bill that we agree with that would absolutely be good things, um, but then talk about why Democrats voted against it and why uh, we think that was probably the right thing. So 
one of the big things that has been getting a lot of attention is uh, the proposal that uh, dedicates $250 billion that will go directly to Americans in the form of cash payments. This would be uh, $1,200 per American, uh, American adult, with an additional $500 for each child. So to put that into perspective, a family of four would receive $3,000. And this would be a one-time payment, um, but it would definitely be putting money into the pockets of Americans. And I I absolutely agree with that. I think Michael agrees with that as well. Yeah, and, and importantly, the economists agree with that as well. Like, yeah. if if people are unable to pay their bills, they start not paying their rent, not eating, defaulting on their loans, um, lose their jobs, like, that is the steep decline into a deep economic recession or depression. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that it does provide is $350 billion to small businesses to help keep workers on payroll. By the way, all of this is according to Axios. Um, and that's also a good thing. Uh, small businesses are the backbone of an economy. We need to do as much as we can to allow them to keep operating and allow them to keep workers on their payroll uh, without having to lay off too many people. That is absolutely a good thing. And another way that the stimulus package supports um, people that could be in some income insecure, right? So that's another really key thing in order to keep the economy afloat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, the deal would offer um, 39 weeks of unemployment insurance to eligible workers, uh, and this would also be retroactive to January 27th. Uh, yeah, that's like super key for um, obviously supplementing unemployment income. And also the fact that it's retroactive is really helpful because we have seen the economy get hit really hard by this very quickly. And being able to not lose all of the wages if you lost your job a couple of months ago can make a really big difference. Yeah. would also give uh, $242 billion for public safety net programs, including money for SNAP, um, and for the Center for Disease Control and for Child Nutrition. Um, and according to Secretary Mnuchin, um, hospitals would get uh, $110 billion. So oh, like, so it seems like this is a pretty strong package. It's also a huge package. Like, yeah, the total $2 trillion package is a lot of money. Yeah, it is, large, it is by far the largest economic stimulus package ever, hands down. So Nathan, like, why would Democrats who were the vo the votes missing to get this to pass not vote for this thing? Well, a few reasons. The first one is the fact that they feel that it doesn't do enough to protect workers from layoffs, which is absolutely true. Um, it does throw money at the problem, but it doesn't provide any safeguards. It does not provide any uh, regulations. It's just here's money. Please don't fire anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, it doesn't provide any money for state and local governments, which is absolutely huge. Considering like, if you think about what actual substantive actions the federal government has taken besides like money, they've done very, very little, like it, it like the international community and experts have totally condemned the level of inaction of the, the federal government and states have had to, and to the extent that they can have stepped up. They've been limiting um, gatherings. They've been closing non-essential businesses. And, you know, they have been the ones on the front lines of this every day. And the fact that yeah. they're not getting money for aid to support the overtime of their employees is like, it's really strange. Yeah. And the last reason, and this is the part, this is the one that is absolutely insane and is almost comically cruel. So when we talked about the uh, payments to Americans, the $1,200 direct deposits to Americans, um, so the money begins to phase out for Americans who make more than uh, $75,000 per year. So if you make 70, more than 75000 per year, you start getting a little bit less money. Which makes which, sense to me. That sounds yeah, progressive. That, that makes enough sense. You know, whatever. Um, but... It also works the other way. If you are making not enough money to have paid federal income taxes in your 2018 tax returns, that 
$1,200 becomes $600. If you are too poor to be able to afford to pay income taxes, you get less money under this bill. That is terrible. And the, the crazy thing to me is that I can hear the arguments for this. You know, like, well, they're not contributing to our society, so why should they get the benefit? And it's like, guys, one, this is a national health crisis, which will result in hundreds of thousands, if, if not upwards of a million deaths. And two, this is the United States of America. We are not a pay-to-play nation. You know, if you are a citizen of the United States, you deserve the rights and benefits and privileges of, of a citizen of the United States. You Just because you haven't paid taxes... Means because nothing. you're too poor to. Exactly, yeah. Like there's a reason we haven't we don't require people that are that poor to pay taxes. You know, we could, right? Like we could we could tax income down to the down to zero dollars, right? You could you could have a flat tax or even a progressive tax that charges like three percent income for the first dollar you make. But why on earth would we do that? And now we're penalizing people because they had to participate in our progressive tax system and they earn very little money. Yeah, people who arguably need that money the most during this period of time who are uh, likely facing even worse economic strife than people in the middle class and people of a higher socioeconomic status, um, those are the people that you are giving the least amount to. That is terrible. That is completely immoral. Democrats were right to vote against this. And that right there, that fact, I actually had to do a lot of digging to find that fact. That needs to be on every single Senate Democrat's lips. The fact that Republicans were trying to penalize the poorest Americans with this stimulus package was unthinkable. But the potential good news is that negotiations aren't over. It is maniacal that the poorest people in the United States are being left out of this stimulus package. The Democrats did the right thing by not letting it pass, and they're still in negotiations to try to get some kind of stimulus, which we do need desperately, to pass. But I want to emphasize one thing that's really, really important. If we don't get the public health crisis under control, no amount of stimulus will save us. And that is key. Like so much of the White House's response and focus has been on the economic side, which like the amount that that has touched American lives so far has been really significant. And so I don't want to downplay the importance of the economic side of this, but unless we solve the public health crisis, it will just continue. Like there will, there will be no bottom to the pit of economic decline. And so focusing on the right solution has to be the long-term fix. Stimulus packages can only be a short-term fix. And the thing is, the long-term solution can't and won't be social distancing and mass quarantines and lockdowns because that itself will also have extremely negative economic impact. We won't be able to, you know, remain afloat for the next year and a half to two years while they try to develop a vaccine, which may or may not come. And on top of that, you know, every time you relax the, sh the quarantine and social distancing requirements, it's likely that cases will just flare up again. So it's not like the long-term fix is going to be we just, you know, stay away from each other until this perishes. It has to be massive testing, massive communication and coordination similar to the model of South Korea. So South Korea is right now doing 12 to 14,000 tests per day with the capacity to do up to 20,000 tests per day. Right now, the CDC doesn't even know exactly how many tests have been done. So like right now, volunteers are keeping track on, a Google, on Google Sheets. But they think that about 25,000 tests total in the U.S. Has been, have been completed. And the thing about South Korea is they're like really getting a handle on this. Their death rate is only 0.6% because they're doing extensive testing. They can get people the care they need early on. 
And because they can, they're testing people, yeah, they have quarantine requirements and things similar to the stuff we have, but the economic path, the economic impact is going to be significantly lower because they, to, to us, we have a dumb brute force solution, which is stop, stop interacting, which is slowly grinding our economy, which relies on human interaction to a halt. So the long-term solution simply cannot be, you know, pretend like everything is fine and stay in your home. It has to be a coordinated effort led by the federal government because states are doing their best, but they can't do it all. Combined with massive, like, testing on a huge scale, coordination so we can quickly track down um, cases, and so we can tell who's recovered so that they can go back out and, and stimulate the economy. The long-term solution just can't be what we're doing right now. But there has been so little focus on developing a centralized infrastructure for tracking these things, for keeping track of the data, for even creating the data from a testing perspective, that we're just so far behind. And I just have no idea where, where the bottom of the pit will be. And now time for one of our more positive segments, which is probably not going to be that positive because <laughs> what <laughs> nothing is? is nothing is positive right now. Tips for good. So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? So, yeah, every week we like to come to you with something you can keep in mind or, or bring to your everyday life that'll make the world a little bit of a better place. And today our tip for good is stop calling it the Chinese virus. Stop it. It is racist and not cool and totally ignorant of the fact that it is everywhere um, yeah. and harmful. So so people, there are a lot of people that um, respond to this by basically being like, oh, well, PC police here, PC police here. Uh, you know, it's just, we're just saying, we're just stating a fact. Yeah, it is true that coronavirus did originate in uh, China, but it has become a global health crisis and we're all in this together. And there's some factual, there's some practical issues with referring to it as the Chinese virus. For example, during this time period, hate crimes against Asian Americans have gone up. And that is really concerning. And this is really fueled by that type of rhetoric. I mean, take for example, uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas. So he was recently asked why it is that he keeps saying Chinese virus. He was asked to justify it. And he responded with one of the stupidest possible arguments he could have done that was just filled with uh, racism and inaccuracies. He said, China is to blame because the culture where people eat bats and snakes and dogs and things like that, these viruses are transmitted from the animal to the people. That's why China has been the source of a lot of these viruses like SARS, MERS, and the swine flu, and now the coronavirus. So problem number one with what he just said. Most of it is just not accurate at all. While it is true that SARS did originate in China, MERS originated in Saudi Arabia. In fact, it stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. The its origin is in its name. And the swine flu originated in Mexico and the United States. You know, because it was infecting pigs. Now, there are a lot of other cultures around the world that judge our uh, eating of pigs because there are some cultures that view that as being uh, disgusting or sacrilegious. And they could probably make a similar argument about us. So... I love when you catch a racist in inductive reasoning. It's like, <laughs> this thing is started with this race. This thing started with this race. So they're bad. And then you're like, actually, you just assumed it started with that race because you're a racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's great. So, by the way, John Cornyn is up for re-election. So if you live in Texas. Shut that down. <laughs> and so not only if you care about the economic impact of this, we're not. it's not only hurting you know, Chinese American individuals, right? Like who 
have experienced an uptick, but we're not even sure how much because it's not tracked that effectively. Groups are now starting to track it and putting pressure on uh, Congress and public officials to condemn um, these actions. But it's also hurting Asian American owned businesses. So if if you're cynical and callous enough only to care about the economy, even then, stop referring to it as the Chinese virus. COVID-19, coronavirus. The, the Rona, the Cove. There's so many fun names that are not <laughs> yeah. racist. So I, le- I recently learned actually um, that Rona, which is like the nickname for the coronavirus, in Urdu actually means to cry. So... There's like oh, a there's double a entendre there. So, yeah. yeah. So that's probably the most applicable name at this point. Rona. The Rona virus. I like that. And that's Tips for Good. All right. Up next, we're going to talk a little bit about how the rhetoric about coronavirus seems to have shifted among right-wing commentators in the media and within politics. So let's start out by talking about our favorite news network that I know that a lot of you are probably huge fans of, Fox News. Ah, yes. So as we know, Fox News always provides fair and balanced reporting, and they never directly contradict themselves days after they make an abysmal claim. Oh, of course not. Of course not. And you know that they're telling the truth because they've been in lockstep with our president every step of the way. So, you know, there's a very stable genius, very stable genius, not just stable because it's not binary, just very, very stable. It's extreme. Um, yeah, they, they have very been stable. absolutely all over the place. So one commentator on March 8th said at worst, worst case scenario, it could be the flu. And another said on the same day, the more I learn of this the less there is to worry about. And then nine days later, it's a pandemic strain of a virus we haven't seen before. <laughs> like, immediate. And what happened in, in the intervening days is Trump declared a state of emergency. And it's it's been a common thing on many prominent hosts. Uh, Janine Pirro, Laura Ingram. Hell, Sean Hannity had one of the most glaring ones where he had a broadcast on March 9th in which he uh, was making fun of people who were covering coronavirus. And he was basically saying, let's bludgeon Trump with this new hoax. And then just a few days later, he says, by the way, this program has always taken the coronavirus seriously. We've never called it a hoax. Are you kidding me? It was recorded. You know you're on video, right? <laughs> you're on video. You see that thing in front of you? Oh, my God. You see that thing in front of you? That's called a video camera, Sean. A video camera. He's like, oh, it crap. I've been w- I've been telling this to the people this whole time. I thought I was just ranting to myself in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> How do I still have a job? Serious? Yeah, exactly. After he blames the-, the network. How do I still have a job? <laughs> Yeah. Another person, I saw another host say, it's actually the safest time to fly. And then four days later, four days. Yeah. On on uh, March 17th, she was like, we have a responsibility to slow down the spread of the virus. Think of other people. <laughs> yeah. And then some of them just haven't been able to figure out their tones. This is, uh, so Jerry Falwell Jr., um, who is uh, the president of Liberty University. He actually went on Fox and Friends a, a few days back, and he simultaneously called coronavirus um, a hoax and also speculated that it was probably deliberately created by the Chinese. Yeah, that's, yeah. I'm not sure how both of those things can be true. Yeah. <laughs> uh- <laughs> <laughs> The Chinese are just terrible at making viruses, Nathan, obviously. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, and, and they're taking our jobs. Yeah. They and, can't even make viruses right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, these comments are happening, like, in, like, the first week or two of March. So, like, the 8th, the 9th, the 13th. Let's put this in a little perspective. Like, okay, could these people, a lot has changed really quickly. Could they have been doing good faith reporting and just not known and then had to quickly change their argument when, you know, more information came out. So first of all, let's be clear, like the virus has been expanding very quickly for months and hit the United States like well before they made these comments, has been spreading quickly. And we reported, 
you know, we're a rinky-dink podcast, and on March 9th is when we recorded our episode saying that it was very serious and we had to take decisive action really quickly and take things seriously. So, like, we're talking Fox is way behind even us. Yeah. We're just two idiots with two microphones that rant every Monday. Yeah. I don't even have I don't even have a secret like a, a an administrator or a, a yeah. aide or anything. I got to read my own news. Yeah. <laughs> but the like thing we're just is sitting around tables with laptops and we're apparently better uh equipped to inform our nation than the largest news network in the country. But that's the thing, right? And that's the scariest part. Is that this is nothing short of a disinformation campaign. Absolutely. And this network is watched by millions of people as their main source of news. So we're talking about a whole swath of the United States being told that this is not a significant thing, that they shouldn't be taking really serious corrective action, which is putting them and also all of us in increased risk. So like yeah. we make jokes, but this is serious. And to emphasize how serious it is to show like how the effects of this coverage have had dire consequences on how seriously people take this, uh, the Pew Research Center conducted a study between uh, March 10th and March 16th about various news networks and um, how people who primarily watch those new news networks perceive the coronavirus. And according to this study, 56% of Fox News viewers believe that the news media has greatly exaggerated the risks of the coronavirus outbreak. And 23% say they've slightly exaggerated the risks. So a huge majority of them believe that it is not as serious as it is. Now, not to generalize, but it is true that Fox News does have an older audience. And older people are some of the most susceptible to this disease, those most at risk of potentially fatal consequences from this disease. And people watching that, a vast majority of people watching that, think that we've exaggerated the risks. That is dangerous. You are misinforming your audience and you are putting them at risk so that you can defend a president that doesn't know his head from his ass and can't do anything in the middle of a global pandemic that he did nothing to prepare. In fact, he fired the global pandemic response team. And let's keep in mind, like, the rate of spread of this disease. So that's the an estimate um, based on the limited information we have of for each person that gets infected, how many people they infect is between two and three people. So if you're not taking, and one of the major factors that can influence this number, this, this spread rate is the number of people you come into contact with, which is the whole thing behind social distancing. So if you're not taking this seriously, if you're not taking social distancing seriously and you are ill, you're going to spread that to two to three people. And if they are Fox News viewers and not taking it seriously, they will spread it to two or three people. This is how we fail to plug the hole in the boat. Or in the case of Fox News, they're probably the type of people to bring a gun onto the boat, jam it into their holster, and then accidentally fire a shot into the bottom of the boat, causing another leak. And if you know Nathan, being irresponsible with gun safety is the worst condemnation that he could, uh. he could levy at you. So... <laughs> Just, that's that's serious. But the thing is also, and most worryingly, that this is all coming in one way or another from the disinformer in chief himself. Like his yeah. narrative all through this has been filled with, you know, half truths, zero percent truths. <laughs> and and the thing is, so like he 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 said the quiet part out loud again last week when he was talking to a reporter. A reporter asked him up on uh, while well, he was um, giving a, a, a press conference, what do you say to Americans that are scared right now? And of course, being a good leader, he said, we are doing everything we can to prevent this virus from spreading to a lot of people. 
and we're going and we hope that we can gain the confidence of the American people in our ability to handle a virus. That's what he said, right? Uh, I wish. And, and so what he said to that reporter was, I say you are a terrible reporter. And he went on to say that like this reporter sp- spreading sensationalism and what the people need right now is hope, not not information, not action, not, you know, an effective response effective leadership at communication. No, no, no. What we need is hope. That sounds a lot to me like someone that's resigned to the catastrophe, the catastrophe that's ahead of us. We're not doing this because we want to scare the hell out of people. In fact, we hope that if you are listening to this podcast and this is causing you undue anxiety to just to turn it off. Yeah. Like if this is causing you harm and you are taking the precautions that you know that you need to take, then just turn off the podcast. No judgments. It's perfectly reasonable. However, we are not going to sugarcoat it for you. We are not in a good place right now. No. And we're not going to be in a good place unless we take precautions. And unfortunately, Donald Trump is content to make things even worse. Just Sunday, he tweeted, quote, We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. At the end of the 15-day period, we will make a decision as to which way we want to go. And just to be clear, when he's talking about the 15-day period, he's talking about the 15-day period of social distancing, which began last Monday. So he's talking about potentially trying to put things back to normal as soon as next week. If we did that, that would be catastrophic. Yeah, millions of people would die. And experts have indicated that... That goes back to the number that Michael gave earlier. What what was that number that you gave earlier, Michael? 2.2 million. If we did nothing. And experts have indicated that the peak of this thing, we should expect in two to three months, not in eight days, you know? And, you know, it'd be one thing if he was going back to normalcy combined with the massive testing that we talked about earlier. But as of today, the CDC's website says, quote, if you have symptoms of COVID-19 and want to get tested, try calling your state or local health department or a medical provider. While supplies of tests are increasing, it may still be difficult to find a place to get tested. So what they're basically saying is you should only try to get tested if you already have symptoms. And we already know that that uh, people that are infected are contagious for more than a week before symptoms show up. And on top of that, once you have symptoms, most people can only get tested when they have a compromised medical condition or are older. So... It'd be one thing if he were saying we have to go back to normal, but we still have a really strong response focused on more targeted testing that allows our economy to return to normal without compromising the health implications of the nation. But that's not what he's saying. The tests just aren't coming. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the Week. All right, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Our asshat this week is uh, Arizona Republican Representative Andy Biggs. Oh, man, Andy Biggs. What did he do? Get him on our prestigious list. Finally, finally not a priest or a preacher or a religious leader. Yeah, that's that's good. We're we're focusing in on the real enemies, the... uh... Exactly. (laughs) So uh, Representative Andy Biggs was one of 40 lawmakers that voted against the stimulus package that included uh, paid family leave um, for Americans. Why did he do this, you might ask? I do ask. You ask that, Michael? Yes, why? why? You ask that. Why would he vote against this? Well, the reason why he did that was because it included paid sick leave benefits for domestic partners. In an interview with the uh, radio program, for the uh, Family Research Council, which is a Christian group, which is classified as an anti-LGBT hate group, he argued, they're redefining family for the first time in a federal, with a piece of federal legislation, to include committed relationships. Because, of course, you don't want to consider a committed relationship to be family. Right, right, Michael? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the problem is that, you know, he said, quote, of course, it's really hard to define a committed relationship. And it's really hard to define anything related to that. And so they've tried to, they've put it in, in my opinion, sort of an amorphous definition. But it leaves it wide open. And they expect to expand that. 
which is kind of a, he seems to be like talking around the thing. I wonder what exactly he's talking about. Yeah. So the subtext within this is the fact that there are a lot of same sex couples that live in domestic partnerships that might not be married. Um, even though uh, marriage equality is legal in the United States, there are a lot of LGBTQ couples that do decide to just live within domestic partnerships, which is totally okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but apparently he sees something wrong with that. Uh, he has notoriously been anti-LGBT. In fact, in the Obergfell versus Hodges Supreme Court case, he said, quote, that it was an affront to the millions of Americans who believe marriage is between a man and a woman. So basically he's saying, sorry, LGBTQ couples, no aid for you. The whole nation is in the midst of a pandemic, a total economic and public health crisis, but you don't deserve any support or aid that everybody else is getting. So we're not going to give it to anybody because I don't want to give it to you. <laughs> that is just Jeez. ridiculous. Like, talk about spiting your face. Like, good Lord, just hurting the entire nation because you're a anti-LGBTQ rights bigot homophobe. Andy Biggs, more like Andy Bigget. Nice, nice. <laughs> the only thing that better than that would be to call him an asset. So yeah. I guess congratulations, congratulations for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. So for our last segment, um, we are going to be doing one of our last, likely one of our last discussions of... Bernie Sanders, um, as it, as in the context of the Democratic primary, because as we've said, um, Joe Biden is almost definitely going to be the Democratic nominee, um, and so we'll be focusing heavily on supporting that effort in the months to come. Um, but if, and we'd probably be doing that this week too if there was an effort, but he hasn't really been doing anything of late. Well, which is. Kind of disappointing. Well, and to be fair, it is a really crazy time in our nation. You know, like, it would be... And that's when you got to step up. Like, if you want to be president of the United States, that's when you have to step up and show some leadership. Mm. Yeah, he has, been a, he has been a bit quiet. That's a fair point. I hadn't really thought about that. I've been, like, mostly thinking, like, it makes sense to step back from being heavily focused on a primary run right now because, like, you can't even be in the same room as your staff. Um, yeah. But you're Which, right that it seems like a strange time as a person attempting to be the leader of our nation not to be speaking out very much. And, I, and you know, I haven't gone looking too much, but I haven't seen anything from him. Which, if I were running for president right now, I'd be doing online roundtables almost every week. Mm. Which, by the way, is exactly what Bernie Sanders has been doing. <laughs> that <laughs> might not be a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, one thing that Bernie Sanders has done recently, because there have, have been a lot of people that have been criticizing the fact that he has stayed in the race, even though it is quite clear that he's not going to be the nominee. And that's what we want to talk about today. Because, you know, we've seen... A number of articles from the establishment uh, left that criticize him for staying in the race. And they charge him with everything from being uh, an ideologue to being an egoist to like just trying to stay in power and in the limelight. And so we wanted to just talk a little bit about this, mostly from a rant perspective. <laughs> yeah. So first off, this idea that he's just in it for his ego is just so stupid. Among politicians, Bernie has showed some of the most focus on policy and some of the least focus on personal self-aggrandizement that we've seen in a long time. I mean, let's go back to 2016 when he first became came into the national uh, limelight. He didn't even want to run. He wanted Elizabeth Warren to run in 2016. In fact, he tried to get Elizabeth Warren to run in 2016. She wouldn't. So he decided to. And when he lost, when he was having meetings with Hillary Clinton, now usually at the end of primaries, you have meetings, the, the people that were running against the person who wins, they have meetings in which they negotiate. They negotiate endorsements. 
Basically, I will endorse you and I will campaign for you if I get X position in your administration. This isn't being conspiratorial. This is just what happens. This is politics. You might not like it, but this is what usually happens in politics. And also, like, you know, at this point, you have made it pretty far in a presidential run. Like, you have some level of qualification. There's reason to believe that you should be in the government. You know, like... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but instead of doing that, Bernie Sanders, he was not trying to get a position in her cabinet, in Hillary Clinton's cabinet. He was trying to get her to sign off on his college bill. It was about policy. It wasn't about him getting a position. That's what he's always been about. So, and then he comes around and does this run and his motto, his campaign slogan is not me, us. I mean, geez, what a narcissist, yeah, right? That's the most narcissistic of all. Be, pretending you're a man of the people. How, how narcissistic. And look, we're not like, we're not stupid. We know that all politicians have a certain level of ego. Yeah, you have to but, you have to think a lot of yourself to think you can lead 300 million exactly, people. <laughs> exactly. But he has a much greater focus on policy. And at the end of the day, that's what this is about. Yeah. It is very likely that the reason why he is sticking in the race for as long as he is right now is to try to rack up delegates in order to uh in order to influence the platform, which is exactly what he did in 2016. Mm. Um and he did influence the platform. Yeah. He got the Democratic Party establishment to agree on a public option. Yeah. That became the centrist view. He got them to he got them to sign off on free college tuition for most Americans. He got them to agree to uh, to reduce the role of superdelegates in the convention. He did that because he stayed in. He racked up delegates so that he could influence the platform. Yeah. A lot of people criticize him for it to this day for staying in. I think that he made the Democratic Party a better party for doing that. And that's exactly what he's doing right now. Yeah. And I've seen, it's been interesting. I've seen criticisms of exactly that move, not even as a poor electoral strategy for the general election, but even as being antithetical to democracy itself to stay in and try to influence the platform, which I find really strange. Like, like saying that, you know, you ran on these views and you lost. And so America has rejected your views. So you shouldn't try to remain influential and like try to continue to move the party. Like we don't messaging in democratic politics is not nearly that clear and we don't have a system of government where you can directly try to influence um, specific policies and legislation yourself as a citizen. And there's a reason for that. We ha we have representatives so that they can go and represent us. And and you know, like the fact that he lost um, or is going to lose the primary is indicative of something, but not necessarily indicative that his policy proposals are rejected by the American people. Yeah. Um, and so like to say that he should not push for his policy proposals because the American people didn't vote for his policy and him and his proposals because what they did vote for was an electable candidate is like those points just don't connect. So to say that like he should leave the race from an ideological perspective because it somehow undermines our representative democracy is like totally disconnected from how our representative democracy actually works. And also one argument that you might make is, well, he's soaking up Democratic Party donations. But here's the thing about that. Right now, he's basically turned the donations to his campaign into donations to help with coronavirus. He's completely changed the entire uh, direction of his campaign from being about promoting him personally as a candidate to being about helping with coronavirus relief. Mm -hmm. You want him to stop doing that? Yeah, exactly. And like the thing is like again, what he is taking advantage of is his organization, his like political organization. Which he has a tremendous organization. Which is super strong, yeah. And his influence. And the people that give a candidate influence are the people that listen to him. 
And so if, you know, we are listening to him, if we are donating to his campaign, if his organization is out there raising money for coronavirus, that's all great. But also, you know, if Joe Biden is listening to him in the way that it seems like he might be, it's him exercising his influence. And Joe Biden doesn't have to listen to him if he doesn't want to. And like getting, continuing to get delegates and gain influence at the convention is, you know, a viable strategy for trying to move the party in a progressive direction, you know? Yeah. And like we've seen that, to your point earlier, Nathan, like these efforts have been effective. They, they are an effective way to move the needle on policy. And if you blame Bernie for doing this, you also have to blame Elizabeth Warren, right? Like Biden specifically said that he sat down with Warren and talked through her bankruptcy proposal. And now it's part of his platform. And now free college tuition for Americans making, you know, below a certain amount is in there. Now that looks a lot like the Buttigieg proposal, which is fair. But the fact that like these topics have become incorporated into the platform is great to the extent that Bernie is contributing to that. I, I mostly, I don't see a downside. Like I don't, I don't see a downside to remaining in and trying to continue to push a progressive platform. Um, especially if like Biden, who people argue is the more electable candidate ends up being the nominee anyway. Just to be clear, Bernie Sanders is going to do everything he can to get Joe Biden elected once it is all said and done, once it's officially over, once he's completely dropped out, he is going to do everything he possibly can to make sure that Joe Biden beats Donald Trump. Michael and I are also going to do everything we can to make sure that Joe Biden defeats Donald Trump. But it is important to recognize that there are a lot of Democratic voters and even a lot of people that don't normally vote that are tired of the status quo, that are sick and tired of Democrats that come in and, oh, they make things a little bit better. You know, maybe they fix all the things that the Republican did or some of the things that the previous Republican did, but they don't really push us much further than that. I mean, Joe Biden said that he was willing to veto Medicare for all if it was put on his desk. So at that point, you cannot afford to alienate the base of the party. The ideological base of the party is a large group of voters that you need. So rather than shaming them, rather than shaming Bernie Sanders, maybe you should listen to him. Maybe when they say, hey, I hate Donald Trump, but you represent the status quo and I need something more than that, Maybe you should listen to their concerns. Basically, what I'm saying is, despite the fact that Michael and I are going to be doing everything we can to push for Joe Biden, please make our jobs easier. And with that, the saddest episode of The Perspectrum has come to a close. And now we'll finish on a high note. All right, Nathan, what are you, what's your highlight this past week? You got to have something. My highlight is all the time I've been spending with my wife. At this point, spending time with her has been the ray of sunshine in a sea of darkness. And I know that might sound like a little bit of a cop-out answer, but it's not to me. It really has been my highlight. And I've really appreciated a lot of the discussions that she and I have had in calming each other down. And that's really made a lot of this bearable. Yeah. I've got to say my highlight is similar. My wife and I had, you know, we spent our weekend basically locked in our house and, you know, we loved that, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and, and getting to spend more time with her is like really alleviated the stress and frustration that all of this has caused. Um, and I'm getting to play a lot more guitar and a lot more music because I can't do anything else. So there is a little bit of a silver lining to all this. And with that, thank you so much for tuning in uh, to the Perspectrum. 
Have a great rest of your week and stay indoors. Stay indoors.